You are listening to The 542 and the Blue Podcast Discussions of law enforcement history Issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other areas Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher This is Victoria your producer Scott, your microphone is on Thank you, ladies, once again, for helping me get my podcast up and running. Uh, That's my producer, Victoria, and, of course, my techno wizard engineer, Alice. Today's Shade of Blue story for 542 in the Blue. We're going to talk about something that's a little bit outside of the Appalachian Mountain areas, but not much. We're going to look at Atlanta, Georgia and an incident, several incidents that uh, started around 1911. Now, most people know about Jack the Ripper of London, son of Sam, Ted Bundy, and the New Orleans Axe Killer. That in itself is an interesting story that we'll talk about at a later podcast. Uh, Most of us are not aware of, or we've forgotten about, the terror of the so-called Atlanta Ripper in 1911. 17 years later, the notion of a serial killer once again captured the city of Atlanta's imagination and attention. More than 20 young black males were found to be murdered. Suspect Wayne Williams is now serving a life sentence after being convicted for two of the murders. His conviction came in an Atlanta that had changed drastically since the Ripper murders of 1911 and 1912. Although even today, 20 years after Williams' conviction, some doubts linger that he was the true serial killer or was just one of several killers. Now let's go back to Saturday evening, July 1st, 1911. 20-year-old Emma Sharp sat at home and waited for her mother to come home. She had been out shopping for groceries and normally Emma wouldn't worry about it. But two weeks before, their neighbor, a Mrs. Watts, was hit on the head with a brick, then dragged into the bushes and her throat cut. That was just the latest in a collection of recent attacks on African American women and women of color. The African American population of Atlanta was scared and angry. This could also describe Emma Sharp, but she was more concerned about her mother. Emma was concerned and worried and went out to search for her mother. Asking at the market, she found that her mother had never arrived there. Not sure where to go from this point, Emma headed back home. Now, in the area that is now Inman Park, she was approached by a tall black male with broad shoulders, wearing a broad-brimmed black hat. This individual asked Anna, How do you feel this evening? I'm very well, she later related of the encounter, and began to walk past him. The man stopped in front of her and said, Don't be afraid. And he told Emma, I never hurt girls like you. Then he stabbed Emma in the back. Bleeding, she ran away, screaming for help. Emma's mother, who she had gone to look out for, was found the next morning, her head almost severed from her neck. And the newspapers reported that Atlanta's Jack the Ripper had killed again. 
The Civil War had been over for less than 50 years. People were still alive who had been born into slavery. Atlanta of 1911 prided itself as the gateway to the New South, a major railroad hub, and the business of Atlanta was business. Atlanta always ahead was the slogan for the city. Now, black-owned businesses had sprung up in several locations in the city and local colleges as well. Spelman, Atlanta Baptist College, which is now called Morehouse, Morris Brown and Atlanta University, which is currently called Clark Atlanta University, were considered among the best African-American learning institution in the nation and major centers of learning in the United States. But most African-Americans worked menial labor jobs, installing sewers, plumbing, perhaps cooking and cleaning in white households. And of course, there was a poll tax in place to regulate minority voting. Segregation, not just the practice, there it was the law. Blacks could not be buried in white cemeteries. They could not walk through white parks, could not drink in white bars, could not cut a white woman's hair. In fact, a black baseball team at the time wasn't allowed to play within two blocks of a white baseball team. Five years earlier, September 22nd, 1906, things were still just a spark away from racial violence. A crowd of several thousand white men and boys gathered in downtown Atlanta because of alleged reports that four attacks had taken place on white women at the hands of black men. The white mom rioted. Three days later, it's estimated 25 to 40 African-American Atlanteans were killed, and they never were able to find where the rumor started or actual victims of these attacks by black men. By 1911, the population of the New South Atlanta had reached more than 150,000, and whites actively sought to keep their neighborhoods free from black homeowners. So when young blacks and mixed-race women began showing up dead, it wasn't cause of much concern in the local media. Mostly read by the white population, black-on-black -black crime merited almost no attention. As the Atlanta Constitution demonstrated in May of 1911, when it buried a two-paragraph story on the body of an African-American woman who had been discovered dead. The story went on to say that the mutilated body of Belle Walker was found by her sister on Sunday morning after Walker failed to return home the night before from her job as a cook at a home on Cooper Street. Two weeks later, a Addie Watts was killed. The newspaper began speculating that the murders may be the work of just one man. The final paragraph was perhaps the first in the local press that compared the Atlanta killings to the work of London's serial killer of the 1880s. On account of the number of recent murders of Negro women, policemen advanced the theory that Atlanta has an insane criminal, something on the order of the famed Jack the Ripper was how they printed the article. Now, 10 days later, the journal elevated Atlanta's Jack the Ripper to the front page. 
The article's writers had found similarities among the crimes, noting that five Saturdays in a row there were murders of young black women. While the journal was running stories about a possible serial killer, the Atlanta Constitution covered the sixth murdered woman in much the same understated way as before, naming the deceased and concluding after just two paragraphs that, quote, mean whiskey and cocaine are the probable causes. Still, when Miss Sharp was found dead and her daughter stabbed, the Atlanta Constitution posted a headline, Theory of Jack the Ripper is giving further substance. Story told in detail how Emma Sharp came face to face with a man police believed was the Atlanta Ripper. The journal described Emma Lou's ordeal quite differently. The paper said that Emma Lou and her mother had been together when they were attacked. In fact, they were not. After first knocking down the mother with a brick, the man slashed Emma, who ran screaming from the attacker before fainting from loss of blood. She awoke to see the man standing over her knife poised until he was scared off by the sound of approaching footsteps. Yeah, sounds very fictional, doesn't it? Newspapers of the day appear to be more interested in selling newspapers than actually printing the truth or even researching what they were told to determine if it was close to the truth. At this point, it became accepted news and was echoed by the coroner. The coroner, Mr. Paul Donahue, said, It's the work of the same man. Now, a local black undertaker, a Mr. Lee, offered a $25 reward for the killer. The news had now reached the other newspapers around the country, and the wire stories began to compete for headlines across the nation. Eighth victim of Jack the Ripper was on the front page of the Sandusky Star Journal of Ohio. AP Wire headlines, Atlanta's Jack the Ripper busy. And this sort of thing, uh, again, what does the man say? If it bleeds, it leads. Saturday night, July 8th, 22-year-old Mary Yendell left the home of her boss on 4th Street, where she worked as a cook. Walking home, she reported that she heard a low whistle. Stopping, she saw an African-American man, tall, and well-built and moving with what one paper described as cat-like tread. Now it's very doubtful that Mary would have used such a description. Yandel ran screaming back to her employer's house and her and her boss, Mr. Slelser, met her at the door, heard what was going on, grabbed his revolver and ran to the alley to confront the man. His statement was that the man was still there but when he told the man to put up his hands, he turned, ran, and fled down the alley. Police were called, including officers on motorcycles, to search the area, but he was never located. Now, within days, the African-American churches in Atlanta raised more reward money for the killer, declaring in a resolution that, quote, foul and unpunished murders have placed a reign of terror over the laboring class of women of our race. But the reward was pretty much useless at this point. It was true that the prowler who had approached Yendel was indeed the killer, 
The streak of Saturday night slayings had been broken. But on Tuesday morning, July 11th, a group of men working on a sewer line west of Grant Park came upon a large pool of blood in the road. They tracked the blood to a small gully where they found the body of a Sadie Holly who had worked at a local laundry. Her shoes were missing and her throat had been cut so that she had almost been decapitated. They also found a two-pound rock that was smeared with her, with her blood. Within minutes of the discovery, word spread and hundreds of onlookers had gathered. By 9 a.m., the coroner had arrived and the crowd had grown to over 500 people, it's estimated. Because so many of the murders had occurred, and because even the police weren't sure which murders were the result of which killers, some of the newspapers called her death the Ripper's seventh victim, while others called it his eighth. And another newspaper in Atlanta actually listed it as the ninth killer of committed by the Atlanta Ripper. The cause and effect was basically hysteria. Police patrols were beefed up, but no pattern could be found that would indicate a possible suspect. In an editorial, the Constitution chastised the police for not finding the killer. What is the matter with the Atlanta police that they have not found the criminals themselves and locked them securely with further deportation? Is it indifference or incompetence? Is Atlanta in need of a police awakening or of a police shakeup? That's one of the things that was running in the newspapers at the time. If you don't get results, you have to blame somebody. By mid-July, the mayor uh, began leaning very heavily on the police chief and the chairman of the police commission. Why the police are unable to cope with the situation is more than I can understand, the mayor is quoted in one of the local papers. City councilmen were even more vocal about the issue. Quote one councilman, a Steve Johnson, we need the police department to reorganize and put on a more effective basis, and we need it badly. Again, Councilman Steve Johnson quoted in the Atlanta Journal. Now, within 24 hours of the discoverer of the last body, police or did make an arrest of a Henry Huff, a 27-year-old laborer. Huff had been with, seen with the victim the night she was killed, and police stated he was arrested in bloody clothing with scratches on his arms. But Huff was only held on suspicion, and in the same constitutional story that described his arrest, the unnamed reporter seemed fed up. The police department has nothing to say in explanation of its inability thus far to cope with the situation, further than the simple declaration that it is doing its best. Later, another gentleman by the name of Todd Henderson was also arrested on suspicion of being the Ripper. He was picked up in a Decatur street bar. Henderson had been seen with Holly the night she was killed in a drugstore not far from the crime scene. Emmy Lou Sharp was brought to the station to attempt to identify him. Her identification wasn't solid, I'm afraid. That's the man, she said initially, then following up with the statement that many investigators have to deal with in victim-suspect identification even today. She qualified her statement 
If that's not the right man, I'm badly mistaken. And I'm sure this was a one-person lineup, not what is done today. That includes multiple individuals and very specific rules and steps that have to be followed to make the identification constitutional. The case against Henderson got better when he told detectives that he hadn't owned a razor or a pocket knife in over a year. Police learned that on the morning after she was murdered, Henderson had dropped off a razor at a local barber shop to be sharpened. And it was no open and shut case set for trials against both Henderson and Huff. They were mostly circumstantial evidence, but both investigation and suspects were given to the prosecutor or the district attorney for grand jury review. I guess hoping that the grand jury could sift through and sort out the, all the evidence collected to see if the men should go to trial for the murder of Miss Holly. Even though two arrests had been made three days after the murder, eight plainclothes patrolmen were assigned to night duty. Uh, Chief Jennings of the Atlanta Police Department made a statement to the press saying, the police department is handicapped seriously so by its small size. But even if we had more men, we could not stop crime. The week ended with uh, Georgia governor offering a $250 reward for the capture of the Atlanta Ripper. Now at the first congregational church, the Reverend Proctor had preached his sermon. The text of the sermon is still available to be read if you know where to look. It states, this bloody hand points to the sins of the people themselves. Our churches are doing good work, but they are not doing enough. They have been getting people ready to die when they should have been preparing them to live. I like that statement. That's a very good uh, uh, point that the preacher has there. Proctor called on his congregants to clean up their neighborhoods by shutting down saloons and gambling dens. Decatur Street is a reproach to our churches in this city. If each member of our churches would go down to that street and save one of its inhabitants, it would be better than all our praying and singing coming together. Cleaning up the community, he said, would make the work of Jack the Ripper impossible. These words would be echoed years later in many communities when the concept of community policing became formalized and became the standard of policing in the United States. And as I've said before, community policing is not a new topic. We have a preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, preaching that to his church in 1911. In the following weeks, the murders did stop. Police continued making arrests of men based on witnesses who they said they were at the scene of the crime. On August 9th, the grand jury indicted two men, Henry and Huff. Huff was indicted in the Holly murder. Even though it was six weeks after the last of, the la of what the newspapers labeled the Ripper murderers, the Atlanta Constitution reported 20-year-old African-American young lady Mary Ann Duncan was found dead west of Atlanta at the railroad tracks. She was found without her shoes and with her throat cut. Very similar MO to some of the other killings. Despite the indictments, no one in the press, the police or the community, was really sure that the Ripper had been arrested. 
That fall, the murders of young women resumed. The body of a many wives was found in an alleyway, her throat cut, and her shoes removed, and the index finger on her right hand had been severed at the middle joint. The police chief went on to the papers to say, He is a murder maniac. If we find this murderer, I am satisfied we will find a remarkable criminal, whoever he may be. Newspapers nationwide were running the stories again about the Atlanta Ripper. A woman with her head almost completely cut off her, off her body, heart cut out, and lying on her side and her body disemboweled, was found and the media also attributed that crime to the Ripper. At black churches again, pastors advised their female congregants to not venture out at night. Venturing out at night is inviting the monster's ravages. Pastor Tanner told a group of concerned citizens at Big Bethel Church where they passed the basket around and raised $1,200 as a reward for the Ripper's capture. Now remember, this is 1911. This is a heck of a lot of money at that time frame, $1,200. Churches were also asking for the police department to hire black detectives in order to facilitate the investigation. Henry Huff, who had, who had been accused of being the Ripper and linked to one of the Ripper murders, was found not guilty by a Fulton County jury. One newspaper headline reads, this means that the police department and the county authorities are as far as ever from a solution to the Jack the Ripper murders. Now, throughout the winter of 1912, more young women were found with their throats cut, but the pace never again reached the early summer of the year before. It should be noted that even with the similarity and the indications that many of the crimes were connected, in March 1912, the Constitution reported that a grand jury had concluded that an Atlanta Jack the Ripper was a myth. Quote, each murder was committed by a different man, and each case it was the result of jealousy following immoral conduct. The fightings appeared to be of more of a racist response in the hopes that the situation would just go away and not affect business in the Atlanta area, I'm sure. It should be noted that most of the Ripper victims were working class or upper class working women. They held positions of trust with their community and their employers. Not the type I would say that would be involved in what the paper referred to as immoral conduct. But the story didn't explain how the grand jury reached its conclusion. And a month later, the same paper ran a story that said, Jack the Ripper turns up again. Now, in this case, the body of a 19-year-old girl was found. She'd been stabbed in the throat. By the spring of 1912, the press were reporting the Ripper's 20th victim. A 15-year-old found floating in the Chattahoochee River. Her throat was cut and her body mutilated. And, of course, police kept making arrests. A man by the name of Charlie Owens was sentenced to life in prison for one of the so-called Jack the Ripper murders. A story in the Atlanta Constitution reported and didn't say which murder he was connected to, but soon the press were reporting more Ripper murders. On August 10, 1912, more than a year after the first 
homicide, a Henry Brown, also known as Lawton Brown, was arrested for killing an Eve Florence, who had been murdered the previous November. Brown's wife told police that he had come home on successive Saturdays, and the same Saturdays that many of the killings had taken place. He came home with his clothes bloody and would sit before the fire to dry them out. Upon questioning, Brown revealed imminent details of other crimes. Detectives believe they found their killer. That October, he went to trial in one of the murders, but a witness to his interview interrogation testified that police had put Brown through pretty much the third degree during questioning, claiming the detectives chained Brown's arms to a chair and then struck him in the ears until he confessed. For his part, Brown said he often suffered hallucinations and would admit to almost anything under pressure. Brown was acquitted of the charges. Researchers into the Atlanta Ripper investigations find that locating documents about the Ripper case, indictments, death records, police reports, uh, is very difficult. Many just don't exist or don't exist anymore. As I said earlier, we know the newspapers of the time were notoriously unreliable. Each paper would ascribe a different number to each murder. So while some papers claim the Ripper was responsible for 20, another might say he had killed 21, and even another one 23. It's possible the hysteria created by the murders may have inspired a copycat killer. Now it is possible the hysteria created by all the murders may have inspired a copycat killer. Or it's possible that someone simply used the same technique that was described in the papers to divert suspicion away from themselves. Whether or not the police arrested the real Ripper, or even if he existed, the Atlanta papers did not forget about him. In March 1913, the Constitution detailed the murder of a Laura Smith who was found with her throat cut, and that was attributed to the Atlanta Ripper. Three years after the Ripper murders had begun, firefighters found notes pinned to fireboxes around the city. The notes saying that someone was going to cut the throats of all the Negro women who were found on the streets after a certain hour of the night. And again, the newspapers attributed the note to Jack the Ripper, but nothing ever came of that. One of the final mentions of Ripper came during the infamous case of Leo Frank, and I spoke about him in a previous podcast, the Jewish businessman who was charged in the death of 13-year-old uh, Mary Fagum, and he was ultimately lynched. I did a Shade of Blue cast on that story previously. Besides Frank, there was one other prime suspect, an African-American man by the name of Jim Conley. Now, an out-of-town detective a W.J. Burns said that Conley not only killed the young lady that Leo Frank was attributed with killing, but that he was responsible for the Ripper deaths as well. Now, nothing ever came from Burns' claim. Memories of the murders pretty much faded away for the most part. Most of Atlanta forgot the Ripper. Seventy years later, the idea of a serial killer again was reported in the press, though, when more than 20 young black males were found murdered. Wayne Williams is now serving a life sentence 
after being convicted for two of the murders. His conviction came in Atlanta that had changed again drastically since the Ripper murders. Yet even today, 20 years after Williams' conviction, theories still lay out the possibility that he was or was not the true serial killer or that he was not the only one responsible. What we have here is just one view of the Atlanta Ripper story. There are several books on the subject and several writers have done an incredible amount of research on the topic. You can go into Amazon or any of your, your book uh, uh, stores and just do a check for Atlanta Ripper and these titles will come up. Speaking of books, if you're interested in some fiction work, check out my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com, for a link to my books at Amazon and a few other locations, as well as links to this podcast, as well as some interesting information about some other topics. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Alice and Victoria, again, for all of your help. In the coming days, don't forget, let's try to be safe and be secure. And remember, do something nice for somebody. Alice, close us out. You have been listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. There you will find a link to the podcast website and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can also be reached through the message portal. This is Alice your engineer. Background music. PurplePlanet.com. Used with permission.